0: Welcome back to The Director's Cut, a podcast brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. In this episode, Jeff Wadlow takes us behind the scenes of his new comedy horror adventure, Fantasy Island. Set on the mythical tropical resort where dreams can come true, the film shifts into nightmare territory as the guests of the enigmatic Mr. Rourke must solve the island's mystery in order to escape with their lives. In addition to Fantasy Island, Mr. Wadlow's credits include the feature films True Memoirs of an International Assassin, Kick-Ass 2, Never Back Down, and Cry Wolf, and episodes of the series Ryan Hansen Solves Crimes on Television and Agent X. After a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Wadlow spoke with director Christopher Landon about filming Fantasy Island. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation.
1: I'm Jeff Wadla. Ooh, that's loud. I uh I wrote and direct and produced this movie. This is my good friend Chris Landon, who's hanging out with us on a Sunday night. Thank you for coming, Chris. Hi. Hi, guys. Hold on. I have to get my questions out. Oh, he's got written questions. <laughs> gonna get very formal, very sorry. Um all
2: right, before I do this. Um so Jeff and I know each other. We're both, I guess, kinda like blumhouse people, slaves. Um, we see each other around the halls, the halls. So we work, we editorial at Blum house, um, is in a moldy, sad building. I think
1: it's an old marijuana dispensary. Cause there's a big safe in the bottom of the, yeah. the building. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it smells terrible. It smells like a thousand tears. Um, it's
2: just filmmakers crying in there all day. Um, but that's how, that's how we know each other. But I always, you know, with these things, I always kind of want to know, because I don't know this about you, like how, where did it begin for you? Did you go to film school?
1: Uh, yeah, I, I actually, I studied film in history undergrad at Dartmouth, and then I went to the Peter Stark producing program at USC uh, and made my thesis film, which was called The Tower of Babel, and this is uh, the first production company credit for me where I got to pull the whole Amblin and use my thesis film, as my production company name. It was all I could come up with at the last minute, so forgive me.
2: So then um, what was your first, like, what would you consider, like, your first big break?
1: I I won this thing called the Chrysler Million Dollar Film Festival, um, where uh, it was sort of like they wanted to do a Project Greenlight. Do you guys remember that show, Project Greenlight, Matt Damon, Ben Affleck? So hypnotic this production company that doug lyman runs wanted to do their version of that and they sold the naming rights to chrysler for like five million dollars and universal came on as a producing like a production partner and i just finished at usc and i entered my thesis film the tower Babel, into that contest it was like a nine month survivor for directors where we Had to go to Cannes and make a short film featuring a Chrysler that we weren't allowed to move. It's very hard to make a movie about a car that can't move. Um, And then we had to live in a house together and pitch a feature. And then we had to go to Toronto and make a presentation. And then they kept whittling us down. And at the end of it, I won it. And I was supposed to get a million dollars to make a movie. But Hypnotic had spent all five million dollars on this year of. Nonsense, and Chrysler wouldn't renew for the second year until my movie went into production, but there was no money. So we did this, my best friend, Bo Bauman, from film school, he and I did this amazing thing where we, we got his aunt, who was a big casting director at the time, she was casting nine hundred two and zero. her name's Fern Champion, to come on as our casting director. We announced that we were casting. Universal was supposed to put up half of the million dollars. They gave us the half a million because they thought we'd gotten the other half because we were casting already, we took the half a million. We started shooting. We started to run out of money in the middle of photography because we never got the other half a million dollars. Universal shut us down for a weekend, looked at the dailies, thought we were doing a good job, and said, okay, we'll give you the other half a million, but you don't get a penny more. And that was my first movie. So that was a gamble. You it was a huge gamble. Gambled. It's called Cry Wolf, starring Lindy Booth, who's actually sitting in the audience back there, <laughs> the redhead. Hi. <laughs> um, so that was my, that was my first first big break
2: so this movie this movie is really 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 interesting because i mean i think everybody knows it's based on a a beloved uh tv show
1: who here Um, remembers can i interrupt for one second no no no. of of, of the 11 of you here who remembers the tv show (laughs) nice really really what did you do on it sir yeah of course that's amazing uh, well, in our extensive market research, we realized that most of the movie-going audience has no idea. <laughs> has no idea what it TV is. a <laughs> TV show called Fantasy Island. <laughs> That's amazing. So we fell between two stools a bit on that one. But, uh,
2: but I mean, how did it... Because the thing that I find so fascinating about this, and I don't really know if this has been done before, but where a, the, the genre shifted wildly. So you went, you went, you turned this into a,
1: a horror film. Well, the show was always pretty dark. Was it dark when you worked on it? Oh, uh, it was light. <laughs> it got into its light. I always boat. remember
2: it as being like pretty It got a little light.
1: S- yeah, it got a little soft in the later years when it sort of was drafting off of a love boat. But early on, it was darker, and they definitely had darker episodes. Like there was a couple episodes where Roddy McDowell played the devil, which is scary. Um, there was an episode that sort of seared in my mind as a woman went back to Salem during the witch trials, which was pretty intense, so there was, there was, there was, definitely some darkness to it, and and it has in its in its DNA this premise of be careful what you wish for, which I think is baked into almost every great horror movie ever made. Right, that you want something and you're punished for wanting it uh, until you learn your lesson, and that just seemed so obvious in in Fantasy Island. Um. But how did it all
2: kind of, I mean...
1: So basically I had this idea uh, for a TV show and I was working on it with a different producer, one of Jason's best friends, Michael Seitzman. Do you know him? He's a big TV producer. He did that show, uh, Code Black. Um, and I had this idea for a TV show. It was before I knew they were making Dr. Sleep, and I wasn't even aware of the book. So I, I clearly had not done my homework. But I had this idea for a show that basically was about a hotel where you could go there and it was haunted. It would manifest your traumas from your past, and you could relive them and try to do things differently. And this guy who was connected to the hotel was sort of like a grown-up Danny Torrance meets Tony Robbins, and he would bring people there. And that, I, was, I was developing that show, and it was inspired by Fantasy Island. And Jason heard I was doing this with his, one of his best friends, Michael Seitzman, and he got really uh, annoyed that I was working with another person. As he does. Yep. And so Jason, being the master producer that he is, called up Sony and got the rights to Fantasy Island and then called me up and said, why would you do this TV show with Seitzman when you can just do the thing with me and I have the rights? And I was like, well, that sounds like a better idea. And so I, uh, I started working on Fancy Island with Jason. You filmed in Fiji? We did. We Fiji. shot the whole thing Beautiful. In Fiji. Really is beautiful. That, and and what diff- is that like, though? It's, I feel like it's got to be a challenge. Super difficult. Developing country. I think after I wrapped, you, we were exchanging emails. And you're like, why don't I write a movie that's set in I Fiji? Mean, I mean,
2: I always end up writing. I've written <laughs> movies where we're in, like, waste treatment centers and... Like I literally write like where people shit, and it's terrible. Um, I I always need to like figure this out. But it was, but it,
1: but you said this was really hard, right? It was very difficult because Fiji is beautiful and it's a wonderful place for two people to go on a romantic vacation. It is not a great place to take a hundred people and millions of dollars worth of equipment and try to shoot a movie, uh, because it is, um, while incredibly beautiful and rugged. They just don't have any infrastructure to speak of. So a perfect example is we were based in the, the most built up area of the city called Nandi, which is, it's not built up at all. Um, in fact, that whole sequence where Maggie Q is running through the hallways, that was the only building I could find in all of Fiji that had interior hallways. Every other building had like open-air hallways, because why wouldn't you? You're in Fiji. Um, So it was very, very, very difficult to find locations other than beautiful beaches. Uh, And so for the house, I wanted the colonial architecture to evoke the house uh, that they used in the original show. But colonial architecture does not exist in Fiji. It's very much a Polynesian kind of Tiki Hut vibe. So the one building that kind of worked was actually in the middle of downtown Suva with cars everywhere and I had this plan to hang green screens I mean it was going to be a nightmare I was I had a plan to cobble it together but it was not going to be easy and the last minute someone showed me a photo of that house that's in the film and in full disclosure the house that's in the movie the top 3 levels are CG so the only thing that's real is the first level right and someone showed me that first that house that's just one floor but it has that colonial architecture and I was like oh that That could work. And I went and I looked at it. I was like, and I saw these other bungalows, and I could just have characters walking around the premises. I wasn't cobbling it together and doing Rourke's office in one building and the lobby in another building and hanging green screens and using all the tricks just to connect the dots. And so I got very excited about it. And I had this idea, oh, this can be very cheap, you know, because when we're shooting coverage, you'll see the first floor, which will be in the frame. And just for an occasional drone shot, I'll pop out and you'll see the full house. And that will be the only visual effects we need for the house. The rest will be practical. But the location itself was incredibly impractical because it was, on the, it was in a more remote part of Fiji. And I was talking to my line producer, and she's like, we cannot shoot for two weeks at that house. First of all, there's no hotels. I don't know where we're going to put the crew. Um, only 15 seater airplanes can land there. So we'll have to run like shuttle airplanes back and forth just to get our our whole team there. We'd have to barge the gear there. It's like a 17 hour uh, boat trip just to get the gear there. Uh, She said like the only thing that possibly makes sense is we can maybe buy out a cruise ship and put the cast and crew on the cruise ship and lash the gear to the deck and like have the kickoff party the night before and then sail there and then start shooting the next day. And I was like, is that what you did? That sounds like a pretty good plan, (laughs) Please tell me
2: that's what you did.
1: (laughs) And so that's what we did. We bought out a cruise ship. We lived on a cruise ship for two weeks. Had all the gear lashed to the deck. Every morning we'd have breakfast on the cruise ship, go to the island, shoot for half a day, go back to the boat, eat lunch on the boat, then go back, shoot another half day on the island. Sun would set, the crew and cast would like takes, you know uh, sunset swims in the in the Fijian ocean. It was beautiful. James Moran, my first AD and co producers here, I know half the audience, uh, and and he helped obviously organize that and make that a reality. And it was uh, one of the more memorable experiences of my life. I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> it was not a sewage treatment plan. Um, so you were talking about, yeah. So we. So we shot the whole movie in Fiji for 36 days, right, Moran? Um, But then, as you have to do on movies, there's a few pickups and uh, additional photography, as I like to call it. I refuse to call it uh, reshoots. And uh, the the studio just wanted a couple more scares. So the whole thing with Sloane, the blonde actress and her doppelganger, that was something that I came up with after the fact. So we went and shot that in Louisiana uh, about four or five months later.
2: So the... Thank you for the question. Blumhouse, you know, has their, their, their model um, and the way that they do things and, and it's always on a pretty restrictive budget.
1: Um, yeah, we made that movie for $7.2 million. That's impressive. Very Thank impressive. You. That means a lot to me.
2: <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think the big question is how? Because clearly there's a lot well, first screen, of all,
1: so I'm lying. We didn't actually make it for 7.2. <laughs> Fiji has a 47% rebate. So you push 7.2 million through a 47% rebate, and it makes a big difference. Um, and then also, I got to say, uh, the cast and crew is fantastic. You know, uh, we had this amazing crew. We got very lucky. It's, it's basically a Kiwi film. So the entire crew is from New Zealand. Um, and and they had just finished shooting Milan for Disney, and the keys for the crew were basically prepping Avatar 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. I don't know how many they're doing, but they're doing a lot of them. And while the keys were prepping, the rest of the crew came to Fiji, and we just bumped everyone up. And so we had this really A-level crew working on our F-level budget movie, um, and, which was, and they were way better than we deserved, and they worked really hard. It was really actually quite heartwarming for me because you know we you know we didn't have trailers for the cast we didn't have a single techno crane day on this movie you know it's my sixth feature film and the first one where i didn't have a techno crane but we for example we carried a fixed arm crane and when we would have to set it up the entire crew would set it up it wasn't just the grips it would be the camera department the electricians the art department everybody would help it was a very it was a totally different vibe it wasn't that kind of like well this is my job and that's your job vibe that sometimes you run into over here. It was much more of a, like, we're all on the same team and we're going to help each other out. So that, that really made the difference. And then the other thing that made the difference was the cast. The cast was really fantastic. I told them ahead of time, I was like, this is going to be unlike any movie you've ever made before. You're not going to have a trailer. You're not going to have a chair. We're going to sometimes hike an hour to, like, a cave to shoot a scene. And, and we're going to put a blanket down on the ground, and we're going to say, just hang out here for the next 30 minutes until we're ready for you. Bring your own hiking shoes. We're not going to give you hiking shoes. Um, and they were, they were amazing. They were all down for it. I think they, they had great attitudes. They were excited about the material. And uh, really, and I would be lying if I didn't say that, that Fiji was the, the thing that pushed it over top, because at the end of the day, I could say to them, look, we're shooting in Fiji. You're never going to be working more than half the schedule. Bring your family. You'll, you'll have a great time.
2: Are there like snakes <laughs> <laughs> and things on the
1: island? Actually, what's what, the danger of the, shooting Fiji is very safe. You know, there's a reason why Survivor shoots in Fiji. Uh, they've been shooting in Fiji, I think, for the last few years. Um, more than that, they shoot every season in Fiji now. There's nothing in Fiji that can kill you on land. Yeah, so no snakes. No just spiders. catering? Yeah, just, just catering.
2: <laughs> okay. Um, all right. Let me see here. The, uh, okay. So one rumor that this was rated R at one point. It was in and fact, that was that an intended you were going for R?
1: Yeah. No, I said to Jason, I said, if we do this, it's gotta be rated R. Cause the, have you guys heard the story of how the show was created? Anyone know that story? So basically, Aaron Spelling was in the office of the president of of ABC at the time in the mid-'70s, and TV movies were big business back then. And he pitched 10 made-for-TV movie ideas, and the president of ABC passed on all of them. And Aaron Spelling got very frustrated and said to the president of ABC, what's it going to take, a movie about an island where you can go and have sex with anyone you want? And he was joking. And the president of ABC said, well, that sounds like a good idea. And so Aaron Spelling left and hired Gene Levitt, who wrote the first made-for-TV movie, Fantasy Island. So when I was talking to Jason about initially, I said, this has got to be a, like a hard R. I mean, we have to be able to indulge in very dark fantasies. Otherwise, what's the point? And he said, absolutely, buddy, you do your thing. Hard R, let's go. And so I shot the movie and we screened the movie and we asked the audience, one of the questions on the questionnaire that we asked the audience when we did our first test screening was, what do you think this movie is rated? And I think it was like 90% said PG-13. And I was like, all right, well, this, this should be a PG-13 movie. Turns out the MPAA did not agree with us uh, and gave us a hard R. And then we began that dance of, you know trimming this frame and that frame, which is so ridiculous. Was it
2: just more, was it more violent? Was it, was it, was yeah, there it was more blood? And it
1: blood. There's a couple swear words I had to lose. Um, oh, this Moran cost me thousands and thousands of dollars in post because we had, we had these two extras that were booked as specialty extras who were willing to be topless at the party scene. And I had always planned to do like a little vignette during the montage with them, and that would be it. That was the only reason, in my mind, we booked them. But because the movie was, the budget was so small, my monitor was like this big, right? So I'm at monitor shooting this massive party scene. We're doing, you know, that crane shot where we went up and we revealed the party and a couple drone shots and wide shots and things like that, except when we're coming in for coverage, and then I get in post and there's like this topless woman In almost every shot. And I had no idea when I was looking at my monitor, but when you put it up on this screen, it's like, oh, yeah, she is in every shot. Like It was some some great AD work, the way you guys got her into every shot. So we had to CG a bikini top on this woman (laughs) to get our PG-13. Thousands and thousands of dollars. Yes. Yeah. Yeah,
2: then you get to do the you know
1: DVD. DVD yeah, no version. The the unrated. There will be the unrated version for the digital download. So did do you rehearse a lot? Is that a thing for you? Or do yeah, you just no, don't even I, have the luxury of doing it. No, I definitely rehearse. I I told all the actors again. Fiji helped. Yeah. I said you got to come to Fiji a week ahead of time. Did uh, you like and, rehearse on the beach? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they just did. Hang out on the beach and rehearse. And we we spent a week together. And I. Again, with a, with a movie, with these low-budget films, I don't know if you work this way, but the way I work is I, I spend a lot of time with the actors ahead of time. I sit down with each one of them, and I go through the script just one-on-one, where I read all the other parts, and they read their parts. And then I start working in pairs, and then I start work bringing everyone together, and we have at least one or two days where we do the whole movie front to back together, and I make everyone sit there, and we do it like a little play in a rehearsal space, and I say to all the actors, I go, any problems with lines, any questions, any issues, I wanna hear it, I will rewrite lines, I will do anything you want right now. We'll talk about anything, everything's on the table. But then when this week is done, and we start to shoot, we're shooting this script. Whatever that script is, at the end of this week, that's what we're shooting. And I'm not debating lines on the day, I'm not, I'm not talking about the ending of the film for an hour on the day, because I do not have the time. And, and also, that's a little bit of a, that's kind of bullshit. I probably would do that even if I had all the money in the world, because I actually believe that when you're shooting the scene, that's when you should be focusing on the dance between the actors and the camera, right? And like, how are you blocking the scene? How are the actors performing in a way for the lens so that you're capturing the moments you need? I think that you need to be looking at that kind of, level of work at that point. And if you're if you're still talking about the lines and who's saying what and when, I think you're missing your opportunity to really elevate your film. But when do you how do
2: you feel about improv though like kind of about do you feel about them going off script, or is it also is that kind of a no no for you?
1: No, I love improv, but I think it has to be you have to be certainly with this budget range. you have to be smart and contained. you have to be like okay i 'm in this setup i 'm in this piece of coverage. I got the scene that 's on the page. I always insist on shooting the scene that 's on the page we right. got the, so then at least I know i 'm covered okay i 'm in your coverage let 's try an alt on that line you got an idea here let 's try something different on here let 's try and I always want to make sure that whatever improv or doing works within the context of the editorial plan I have.
2: So one of the things, and I think it's probably, I mean, I can only speak for myself, but like one of the reasons why I've gone back to Blumhouse and, and making these, these lower budget films is because um, you, have, you have unbelievable freedom Um, you don't really have anybody on set hovering over you and telling you what to do and telling you you're not getting the right coverage and they don't like this angle or they don't like someone's hair. Um, and is that what, is is that something that, that really brings you back to this world over and over?
1: Yeah. I, I don't like, look, if you want to move fast and you want to do it for not a lot of money, you can't, you can't second guess choices, right? You have to, you have to go with your gut. And, you know, it's like, I mean, it's cliche, It's almost a cliche at this point, but the Malcolm Gladwell Blink book, you know, puts forth the thesis that you, often your first instinct is your best one. And so I think the Blumhouse system rewards that kind of thinking. Um, so I, I, it does bring me back. Listen, if somebody wants to give me a lot more money and they want to second guess all my choices, great. I'll do that too. But if, if we're going to be making the movie for limited resources, absolutely not. I cannot tolerate the second guessing because you just can't get it done It can't happen does anybody have any questions they want to ask before we go um that's a great question the question was when when we were rehearsing and i said to the actors now's your moment to change lines did they i would say yeah some more than others you know actors will do this weird thing where they'll they'll say like oh this line doesn't make sense and they'll spend 20 minutes talking about it and they'll They'll keep changing and changing and changing and then by the end of the 20 minutes, it's pretty much the same line that you started with, but that's their process for understanding the intention and kind of owning it and making it theirs. Uh, so I'm fine with that. Um, you know my goal when I and I say this to all my actors, I say to them, I just want you to look great. That's the only reason my job is to make you look great because when you look great, I look great. So if you're not happy about a line, you're not happy about some wardrobe or any choices we're making, You know, Let me know. Let's find something that you feel good about. I always tell you my intention and what I'm going for. And if you can help me find another way there that you're happier about, sweet. Because if you look great, then I look great. Um, I am a big believer in that you should not plan for sequels. The question was, would there be a Fantasy Island 2? Because if you plan for a sequel, there's never going to be a sequel, is sort of my feeling on the topic. Like, I think we've all read enough articles in the trades about planned trilogies that only had a single film that, that kicked them off. So I, I have no plans for a sequel. Certainly if uh, it made financial sense for, a, for us to revisit Fantasy Island, uh, I would love to go back to Fiji and live on a cruise ship again for two weeks. <laughs> but uh, as things stand right now, I'd say no. I mean, I kind of, I liked that the ending was a beginning I think there's a great symmetry in that. It's not some, I, I've been called out in a few, more than a few reviews for just trying to set up a sequel, but that was not the intention. Like, I love the idea that, in, that an ending can be a beginning because I do think it's an optimistic way to think about endings. Probably both. The question was uh, does, does low budget filmmaking make you better or is it just a pain in the ass? Well, I actually want to know what you... I'll answer it, but I want to hear your your take, too. Definitely both. But more, I, th- I think it
2: does force you into a more creative place. You have to be so nimble um, and creative, you know, to solve problems. Because normally on a, big, on a bigger budget film, it's really funny. I was... This last movie that I just shot, um, which was for Universal, um, we were also a low-budget film, and they were sort of simultaneously... Um making or finishing cats <laughs> and and I kept begging for money, like five dollars, like I was like with a little tin can like begging for money, and they just kept saying, No way, um but I knew the millions of dollars that they were throwing at this other movie a groin removal. but and I think ultimately that that can be a problem. I think that can actually hurt a film um because there is no bottom, you know? Um and so they can just keep throwing money at the problem, but they're not actually digging in and fixing it um in a meaningful way. And I don't mean to use that as an example, that other film, because I, I it's far be it for me to judge. But um but I'm just saying like on these types of movies, like yeah, you have to just you've got to figure out you've got to figure your own way out of your own problems.
1: So Yeah and I, I teach a short film workshop in my hometown. I've been doing it for about 15 years and I go back And I take high school teams and college teams and community filmmakers, and I take them through making a short film in 72 hours where they have to pitch me, they have to write, I help them rewrite, I help them come up with a shot list, a production plan, they shoot it, I go to each set, I direct a scene with them, then we edit them together, we screen them on Saturday night and have a big party. And it's a really trying experience for all of them to make a short film like that in 72 hours. And I always say to them, look, when you're in a box, the only way out is up. And, and I do feel that's the case often with, with the films that we make for Blumhouse. Um, you know, I didn't properly introduce Chris Landon. He, he made Happy Death Day and Happy Death Day to You uh, and a bunch of great, fantastic genre films, some with Blumhouse, some without. Uh, so he knows better than I do uh, that this fact. But the other thing I, I was going to say about making movies uh, in this budget range in addition to being nimble, I've found you have to also have to be insanely stubborn. Right when you when you have the luxury of time and money, you can be like, yeah, let's try it that way. Let's try it this way. Sure, why not? Uh, but. When you, when you don't have the time or the money you, and people are like, what about this? What about this? You, have to, you just have to like block them out and you have to say, no, we are doing it this way. We don't have the time. We don't have the, the resources to try this three different ways. This is the way we're doing it. And I, I hear everyone, but I don't have the time. So we got to just do it this one way. Trust me, please. Let's go. Yeah. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you, everybody, for hanging out. I really appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed the film.
0: Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. Don't forget, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.